Hello and welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about a new accounting standard, which is very exciting. That's IFRS 15 Revenue. And that replaces IS 18 Revenue and IS 11 Construction Contracts. Joining me today to talk about it is Tony DeBell, who is our Revenue Leader and also a member of the Transition Resource Group. Welcome to the podcast studio, Tony. Thank you. So tell me, why have we got a new revenue standard? There are several reasons. IS 11 and IS 18 are both good standards with clear and sound principles. However, both standards don't have a lot of detail and don't address many of the more complex aspects of accounting for revenue recognition. Uh, When you look at US GAAP, the existing US GAAP perhaps has a slightly different problem in that there is lots of detailed industry-based guidance, but in some cases the principles in that guidance contradict each other. And so the ISB and the FASB decided it would be a good idea to jointly develop a converged revenue standard that addresses those issues. So it's a converged standard. Does that mean it's exactly the same? No, it doesn't. When the standard was first issued, about three years ago, the two standards were the same. There were some differences that were consequential on other gap, for example, in connection with impairment, but otherwise the standards were the same. But subsequent to the standard being released, uh, the two boards have made a number of changes, and in some cases those changes are different. And so at the moment the standards are not entirely converged. So the standard was issued and then the board made changes uh, up until now? Yeah, that's correct. So the, uh, the two boards created a thing called the Transition Resource Group. Transition Resource Group was made up of about 20 people drawn from preparers and auditors uh, and users of financial statements. Uh, And that group met a number of times in public to debate emerging issues. So issues submitted by preparers or submitted by auditors. The Transition Resource Group recommended to the IASB and the FASB in some cases that it might be helpful to change the standard. The vast majority of issues discussed were resolved without the need for standard setting, but in a small number of cases, the two boards decided that they would change the standard, and in some of those cases, the changes were different. And so there are now differences between the two standards. Okay, so we did have some changes. Are we expecting any more? Is the standard now final? No, I think the standard is now final, and I think both boards have indicated that companies need to have a clear pathway to adopting the standard, so I don't expect there will be any changes to... IFRS 15 now ahead of the post-implementation review. So the standard comes into effect in six months. What's your experience of transition? So I've been working with companies probably for three years now since the standard was first issued. And my sense is that um, many companies have found out that the transition process takes longer than they expected. So the process of identifying their existing policies, identifying their contracts with customers and working out what the differences are Uh, has typically taken longer than companies have expected. I've also found that um, for most companies, they've identified uh, more differences than they expected to find. And perhaps that's not surprising because uh, I said previously that there was limited guidance in the previous standards. There's much more detailed guidance in IFRS 15. And I think many companies are finding that within that detail, there are differences that they weren't expecting. The other thing that I think companies have to work through is 
The other consequential changes, so for example in connection with taxes or it's for example in connection with employee compensation. Okay, and then also I imagine there's additional disclosures, but also they'll need to train people, you know, around the world of how the new system works and the new revenue standard works. Yeah. Okay, so that's a little bit about transition. Does the standard help at all? It does. There are there are two approaches to transition. So the first is the full retrospective approach, uh, which is, as it sounds, that would be applying the standards if it had always been applied, restating the comparatives and adjusting opening retained earnings at the beginning of the earliest period presented. There are some expedients to help with that process. Uh, the alternative is uh, modified retrospective. And modified retrospective is the same approach, but at a different date. So applying the standard at the beginning of the earliest period presented. So is there any help in the standard of how to do transition? Yes, there is. There are two approaches to transition, both of which include practical expedients to facilitate the process. The first is full retrospective, which is as it sounds, uh, the standard is applied as if it had always been applied, subject to the expedient, the comparatives are restated, and there's an adjustment made to retained earnings at the beginning of the earliest period presented. The alternative is what's called the modified retrospective approach, which is the same logic, but at a different date. So the comparatives are not restated. Uh, Retained earnings is adjusted on the 1st of January 2018. But in order to provide a history for users of the financial statements, companies using the modified retrospective approach are required to include additional disclosures uh, of what revenue would have been under the old accounting policies in 2018. Okay, so under the modified retrospective, your comparatives would be under IS-18 and then your current year would be under IS-15. That's correct. But it'd be supported by disclosure. That's correct. Okay, so let's get into the standard now. One thing I've never understood is IS-18 was a risk and rewards model and IFRS-15 is a control model. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between those two? So what the boards were trying to do with the standard was to develop a single approach to the recognition of revenue. And they decided that the the best way to do that was to say that revenue gets recognised when control of the goods or the services gets transferred to the customer. I think the definition of control for the purposes of the revenue standard is that customer has the ability to direct the use of the asset and and, uh, obtain all the remaining benefits from it. Now, it is possible that there could be some risks and rewards retained by the seller but at the point at which the buyer has the ability to direct the use of the asset is the point at which revenue is recognised. And so there could be circumstances where control has transferred, but risk and rewards haven't, or maybe the other way around. Okay, so there could be some differences there. Yes. What is the core principle of IFRS 15? The core principle is that revenue is recognised to depict the transfer of goods and services to a customer, So that's the core principle, and then the standard introduces a five-step approach that would apply to all contracts with customers. I love a five-step approach, Tony. I used to be a teacher. I feel like steps makes it easier to follow. So let's go through each of those steps in turn. So step one is to identify the contracts with the customer. So to me, that sounds straightforward. I find the contracts. I know I'm in scope. Mm -hmm. What's the tricky bits there? So there are three or four things here that might be worth thinking about. Uh, The first thing is that there is now um, some clear guidance about which standard a particular contract fits in. 
And that's particularly relevant, for example, where parts of a contract might be in the leasing standard, parts in the revenue standard. There is some guidance about the implications of uncertainty about whether the customer will pay. So it needs to be probable the customer will pay when called upon to do so, to get into the revenue standard at all. And then there are two areas in which there is some more detailed guidance uh, that goes beyond what we had before. The first is about when contracts are combined. So when do you um, look at more than one contract with your customer together in order to determine the revenue accounting? And then secondly, uh, how do you account for modifications to those contracts? Whether you account for a modification as a separate contract or a continuation of an existing contract. And if it's a continuation, how do you decide whether the accounting is prospective or retrospective? Okay, so although it sounds straightforward, there's still some tricky things to look out for. So once we've identified the unit of account, the mm. contract we're looking at, step two is then to look at the performance obligations. Yeah. What, what is a performance obligation? So the notion of a performance obligation is very similar to the notion of a deliverable or a promise that people might have talked about uh, when looking at IAS 18. But the definition is, is different. So the notion of a performance obligation in IFRS 15 is that a company should identify the promises to its customers in the contract and then decide whether those promises are distinct. Distinct promises are accounted for separately. And what is a distinct promise? A distinct promise, you address the promises in the contract in two steps. Firstly, can the customer benefit from the promise by itself? And that's typically relatively straightforward. The second step is to say, are the promises separable from each other? And that's carried out in the context of that contract. And what that's trying to get at is, are the different promises in a contract a series of inputs to generate a specific output, which is the performance obligation, or in fact, are they things that stand alone and are therefore separable and should be accounted for separately? So in that step, I imagine in some cases it's really straightforward and obvious, but others it can actually be quite tricky and you need yeah. to look at the detail. Okay, so step two, we then identified the performance obligations. Step three, we then have to work out the transaction price. What's different there? So the transaction price is the amount that the company expects to receive in exchange for transferring the goods and services. And there are actually three or four aspects of the transaction price that are different. Perhaps the area in which there is the most difference is the accounting for variable consideration, so when the price isn't fixed. Okay, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so there are lots of circumstances in which the contract price is fixed, and that's relatively straightforward. Other circumstances, the price is variable. For example, when there are retrospective rebates or discounts, when there's a bonus for getting done early or a penalty for getting done late, all of those things would be variable consideration. When there's variable consideration, IFRS 15 says step one is to estimate it. Have to estimate it using either the most likely amount or the expected value. Uh, that's not a policy choice. You have to use the, the method that is, provides the best prediction of the final outcome. So that's an estimate of the price. The amount that is included in the transaction price is then the amount for which it is highly probable that there will be no significant reversal when the uncertainty is resolved. Now, that constraint is something that just doesn't appear in the model today, and so that's quite a significant difference. 
So could you have a company that, say, currently recognises zero for variable consideration and now have to recognise a minimum under that constraint? Yes, you could. And so you could have differences at both ends of the spectrum, if you like. So there are some companies that uh, don't recognise revenue today while there, are, while there is uncertainty about the consideration. There are other companies that believe they have the history sufficient to be able to make a reliable estimate, which is the test in IS-11 or IS-18, that make that estimate and recognise revenue. Now, when the, the constraint in IFRS 15 is applied, you're quite right. There could be a minimum amount that has to be recognised, which could mean some companies recognise revenue earlier. There might also be some situations where companies have been making what they believe to be a reliable estimate, but in fact, not all of that amount will pass the... Uh, the threshold of it being highly probable um, that there won't be a significant reversal and therefore revenue will be recognised later. So that's token you, isn't it, in comparison to ISAT? And so people need to make an estimate and then look at the constraint as well. Yeah. So there's two elements. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's step three. And then step four, you've identified your performance obligations, you've got your transaction price, and then you need to allocate the transaction price to those performance obligations. How do you do that? Uh, you do that using relative standalone selling price. So whereas under uh, IS18 there were a number of methods that could be used to allocate the consideration across the different deliverables, uh, IFRS 15 is specific that you have to use the relative standalone selling price. And what is the standalone selling price? So that's the amount that a company would charge to sell the item separately. Uh, the best evidence of that is obviously um, if the company does sell the item separately. If the company doesn't, then the standard says make an estimate, and the estimate would be made, for example, using the price of similar goods sold by the company, the selling price of similar goods sold by other companies. Uh, If that's not available, maybe uh, management would look at uh, cost plus a reasonable margin. Okay. So, again, they need to find a way of coming up with the standalone selling price and then allocating based on that. That is quite different to what some companies would do today. Okay. And then the last step, then, step five, is you get to actually recognise something. Mm-hmm. What, what do people need to think about in step five? So there is a single model, and the company has to apply that single model to decide whether it recognises revenue over time or at a point in time. The first step in the process is to consider whether revenue gets recognised over time. Uh, and for this, company has to think about, firstly, does its customer benefit from its performance as it performs. If it customer does benefit as it performs, revenue is recognised over time. Uh, secondly, company has to think about whether its performance either creates or enhances an asset the customer controls. And if it does, then revenue is recognised over time. And then finally, company has to think about whether its performance is creating an asset that has no alternative use, and at the same time, it has a right to be paid for the work it's done to date if the customer cancels. If either of those three criteria are present, revenue is recognised progressively over time. If none of those three criteria are met, revenue is recognised at a point in time when control transfers to the customer. And I presume if it's over time, it's similar guidance to stage of completion that was in IS18? It is. IFRS 15 says you need to determine the method that best depicts the transfer to the customer. Companies would typically choose an input model or an output model. So a lot of that looks very similar to uh, IS-11 or IS-18, but there are some differences. 
So for example, using a milestone method that allows a build-up of work in progress would not be consistent with IFRS 15. Could you actually see that, say, under IS 18 it was overtime and under IFRS 15 it's point in time? Yes, you could, because I think the models are different. And so I think it's, it's um, I've seen examples where companies that have been uh, recognising revenue over time under existing standards end up recognising the point in time and the other way around. So, we've talked through the five steps. Is there any guidance in IFRS 15 outside those steps? Yes, there's, there's three things that are probably worth talking about. Um, there's some specific guidance for the accounting for licences of intellectual property. There's a model for determining whether a company is principal or agent. And there's some guidance on the accounting for contract costs. So firstly, licences of intellectual property. When a, a company has identified uh, as part of step two that one of the performance obligations uh, in a contract is a licence of intellectual property, it then needs to determine whether uh, that licence transfers uh, a right to use the company's intellectual property as it exists at a point in time, in which case revenue is recognised at that point in time, or does it transfer a right to access the intellectual property as it exists over the period of the licence, in which case the revenue is recognised over the period of the licence. There is one additional feature of the guidance for licences, which is a variation on the constraint for recognising revenue when it's variable. Uh, and here IFRS 15 says that if the consideration for the licence of intellectual property is subject to a sales or usage-based royalty, then revenue is not recognised until the customer's sales or usage has happened. Okay, so for licensing, you follow the five-step model, you get to step two, one of your performance obligations is a licence, and then you move out of the five-step model, and there's this additional sale-based royalty exception. I think the, uh, the, the board would say that you apply the remaining steps in a slightly different way, but there is a clearly identified model for the accounting for licences of intellectual property. Okay, and principal agent? So, with the change from recognising revenue on the basis of the transfer of control rather than the transfer of risks and rewards, the two boards decided that it was necessary to revise the way that a company assesses whether it's principal or agent. And so here the key test is whether the company obtains control of goods or services before they are transferred to the, to the customer. A company that obtains control is the principal, a company that does not is the agent. Okay, so that's, that's quite different detailed it guidance. Is. And then contract costs, the last one? So IFRS 15 provides some guidance on the accounting for contract costs. So obviously they are not revenue, but this is picking up costs that might not be dealt with specifically by other standards. And perhaps the biggest difference here is the accounting for the costs of acquiring a contract. So these are the specific incremental costs that a company incurs in order to obtain a contract, for example, sales commissions. And here the standard says that those costs are capitalised and amortised over the period that revenue is recognised. There's a practical expedient for contracts with a duration of one year or less, but for all other contracts, then costs of acquiring the contract get capitalised and amortised. And in t under today, you'd generally would people put that to the p and I think most people would write those off today. Not everybody, and I think uh, the test today will be to see whether or not those costs meet the definition of an intangible asset. So I don't think there is um, complete consistency, but I think a lot of companies today would write those costs off. 
Okay, so we've got through our five steps and heard about some additional guidance in the standard as well. You mentioned right at the beginning that there'll be some additional disclosure. What do people need to look out for there? So there's a long list of additional disclosures. As always. I think what the, the, the board has reacted to here is that the disclosures required by IAS 18 are relatively limited. And quite often the disclosures in financial statements today reflect that, that they're relatively limited revenue disclosures. IFRS 15 now provides both a disclosure principle, I think it's worth referring to the disclosure principle when thinking about the disclosures, together with a long list of disclosures that might be required to meet that principle. Uh, and I think companies here need to think about how they meet the principle, but also how they collect the information necessary to make the disclosures. Okay. And if I was to put you on the spot, Tony, and ask you for one thing that people should be thinking about now for IFRS 15, what would you say? I would say that it's only six months until the standard becomes effective. This is an area, uh, interestingly, where securities regulators are beginning to take a significant interest. Most securities regulators are now requiring specific disclosures in either quarterly or half-yearly reporting in 2017. And I think the, the securities regulators see that as fulfilling two objectives. Uh, one, it provides useful information to users. But secondly, it's also an impetus for companies to get on with it. Uh, and if I take that together with what I said uh, back at the beginning about quite often the, the process takes longer than companies think. Uh, there are more changes or more challenges than, than, than companies think. And we are only six months from the effective date when companies will have to start collecting information under the new standard. And so for that reason, I think that the, the, the message at this stage is that I think companies should be getting on with it. So top tip there for everyone from Tony DeBell, get moving. <laughs> Stop. Start looking at it now if you haven't already. Okay, well, thank you very much for joining us today. That was our episode on the new revenue standard IFRS 15. If you want more information on IFRS 15, then you can visit our website at www.pwc.com forward slash IFRS. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Ruth Preedy. Happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.